to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're starting a new series. Mmm, we get to do some, I, I, it's not old Hollywood, but it's like the second golden age time. Some classic. Some, very much some classics. And a director who I've really respected for a long time. And a director mm-hmm. I know you fell in love with particularly. The best movie that David has ever made me watch or anything for any reason in the almost 20 years that I've known him was The Apartment. And the man who wrote and directed that film is the subject of this director's series, mm-hmm. a man named Billy Wilder. So uh, we are going to be talking about the works of Billy Wilder. Uh, He's lived a very interesting life. He is a funny man, a difficult to work with man, an incredibly talented writer, and a Hollywood legend. Yeah. And we are going to start with one of his very early films. Double Indemnity. A Los Angeles insurance representative lets an alluring housewife seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder that arouses the suspicion of his colleague, an insurance investigator. Mmm, film noir, man. There's nothing like it. We like a film noir when it's done well. I I love really good film noir, and especially getting to watch it when it was in its real Hollywood heyday. Mm Mm-hmm. There's something magical about it because it really fit that time. Mm-hmm. It really did. This is a fun one. It is. I think it it runs a little long because there's a lot of exposition. And I don't think they needed to do that much. But like as I'm thinking back on it, it also feels like a little bit because of the time, you know, Back when these films were playing in movie houses, you know, people just showed up whenever. They didn't really come when the movie started. They just kept they kept them going on a continuous loop. So you just kind of walked in, and then once you had seen everything, you left. Yeah, and I mean, it's you know, you're you're going into a giant theater. You're it's a whole thing and an experience, mm-hmm. and you might sit through the second or third reel. And if you liked the the last reel enough, you might stick around and try to watch the beginning of the movie or something. Yeah. So, like that repetitive nature is like I I don't love, but I do understand that was that that was a nature of the beast of how the films were watched. So I understand that. Um, but I do I do like this story. Yeah, I like I I enjoyed this one. It's a slow burn for sure. Yeah. And they they do make pains to handhold you through the investigation part. Mm-hmm. But I think what is cool about the story and what holds up is the reversal of the structure. Mm-hmm. Because this is a very early version of, we're going to tell you exactly what happened right away. But the real drama of this is how and why it happened. Yeah. And that is, I mean... That was a big fucking deal. You know, a lot of a lot of directors just went for straight mystery and Billy immediately latches onto the mystery is not that. The mystery is what the hell are these people going to do to make it end this badly? Well, you it's not even that because we start knowing our main guy is the bad guy. He did the murder. He he did the crime like he's a bad guy. Yes. Why did he do it? Okay. Hot lady. Cool. 
But that's not even the clinger. Like, that's not even the thing. The thing is, this woman has done this before. Yeah. She's had someone killed before. And she just happened to be the reason the other, the, the first wife died. Like, she's done this before. <laughs> like, that's what's the most insane thing that happens in this. It's true, but also the much more subtle twist of he's just as morally complicit. Oh, he is. Because as he states, I started to think, well, could I get away with this? Sure. And I love the fact that all through this, Wilder makes no attempt to redeem any of his characters. Mm -mm. None. The whole thing is, they're terrible people. They made terrible decisions. We're going to explore why. And for Hollywood, that was almost a subject too hot to handle. We'll talk about it in the production. Mm. This is a common theme through all of Billy's work. He pushed the envelope about as far as he fucking could. I love it. Today, he would be going so much deeper, so much twistier. Mm -hmm. That was Billy's MO. It's just he also did it with a real flair for humor. Yes, he did do that. And by the way, this movie... Very darkly funny in a lot of points. Not as darkly funny as some of his later stuff, but mm -hmm. he throws in a good dash of humor here. Yeah, he does. All right. Well, our budget was $980,000. That's the equivalent of about $16,275,000 today. Okay. It's not a bad chunk of change for, for a movie like this. Mm -hmm. Box office-wise, it made about $5 million, which was close to $83 million. It was <laughs> a hit. Yeah. Which is somewhat surprising for a movie like this. This is not an easy sell to like a general movie going audience in still in World War II America. This is a word of mouth film. A little bit. I mean, it, it's also th there's a shock value that will sell for mm -hmm. sure. Sure. With the the sort of very raciness of the affair and all of that stuff going on with it. But I mean, we're not even talking post-war America. We're there. We're still in World War II. We're still releasing like propaganda films and canteen star films. And in the middle of it, he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna make this really fucking dark film noir, mm -hmm. and I'm gonna make five times its money back." Uh, that's Billy Wilder. Yeah. One little fun trivia note on the production: the film came out the same year as David O. Selznick released the film *Since You Went Away*. Selznick included an ad for that film saying. Since you went away are the four most important words in movies since Gone with the Wind. Wilder hated the ads and hated David O. Selznick. And so he countered by buying his own advertisements that read, Double indemnity are the two most important words in movies since Broken Blossoms. Referencing a 1919 D.W. Griffith classic film. Mm. Selznick considered legal action because he was so pissed off and... Alfred Hitchcock, who also hated Selznick and had his own battles, took out his own advertisements raising the two most important words in movies today are Billy Wilder. <laughs> That's really Billy Wilder is the biggest pain in the ass to people who deserve it in movie history. He is a petty bitch, and I love it. Oh my God, was he ever. <laughs> Wickedly funny, and so many, I, I, I've heard or seen stories about actors who worked with him. Like, he was amazing. Mm -hmm. He was incredible. He was perfect to work with. But if you got on his shit list, 
Oh, you're fucked. You were fucked. <laughs> Loved it. I I like assuming that like he could be like cheeky and fine. Like that's great. Well, it shows through in his fucking movies. Mm-hmm. And like in that 1982 Oscars clip that we had, mm-hmm. <laughs> just all of his just, I I don't fucking care. And uh, there's, a, there's a good reason why. Um, he was born Samuel Wilder in Poland. He did a lot of films in Germany mm-hmm. for a long time because he was very in and around the German film scene. But... He was Jewish, and he had to flee the Nazi regime. <laughs> yeah. So he dealt with way, way tougher shit than Hollywood backstabbing and bullshit. Sure. Like, this is all trivial bullshit. Fuck off. And he just laughed it off. I love that. And made a whole career out of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about our writing. And one interesting thing about Billy Wilder's writing is that he never worked alone. He always collaborated on the mm. films that he wrote. Okay. So we're going to start with the novel that this is based on by a gentleman named James M. Kane. He was a pulp noir novelist and a film contributor whose most famous works include this story, Mildred Pierce, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Oh, okay. Some names you might have heard of before. Yeah. Then we have Mr. Wilder. Now, I'm going to give you the biggest credits. And when I give you these, understand that 90% of these movies were nominated for Oscars in some form or fashion. Mm. At least up until his later career, where he really just leaned into comedy. Before this, as I said, mostly German films. But then when he gets over to America, he writes Ninochka, Hold Back the Dawn, and Ball of Fire. After this, he wrote The Lost Weekend, A Foreign Affair, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, Stalag 17, Sabrina, The Seven-Year Itch, the Spirit of St. Louis, Love in the Afternoon, Witness for the Prosecution, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Ocean's Eleven from 1960 he worked on, Irma LaDuce, Kiss Me Stupid, The Fortune Cookie, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, and The Front Page. And he worked well into the 80s as well, but those are the big name movies that, that came out that he helped write. Mm-hmm. Now the other screenwriter for this movie is a gentleman you may have heard of, but he's not a screenwriter. Hmm. His name is Raymond Chandler. Oh. He is one of the most famous hard-boiled detective novelists in American history. He was the creator of Philip Marlowe, who is known from The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye. Humphrey Bogart played him. Elliot Gould played him in the 70s. Mm. They've remade those stories over and over again. Yeah. This is his screenplay debut, and for all intents and purposes, is the only screenplay he ever worked on. Interesting. Was he? And we will explain why when we get to the trivia. Was he more like a a consultant? We will get into that. But before we do, mm-hmm. what do we think of the writing of this movie? It's pretty good. I mean, they do a good job of like having a well thought out plan. Like it's a good crime. Like it is. Yeah, it's a great crime. And they explain it well to the audience and. They have enough moments when they're executing it where something could go wrong, where you could see like, oh, is this where it goes off the the rails? Like, oh, is this it? Is this it? And it doesn't. And so from for from our perspective, it seems like everything's good, which is great. So the problems make sense. The only thing that tears them apart is themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, that's such a lovely way to treat the story. All too often, it's it's the perfect crime except for this one clue, mm-hmm. which 
kind of is right is what happens in this movie but i love just the little extra turn of his claims manager knew the crime mm-hmm. but he didn't know who did it yeah because he was too blinded to figure that part out and just that extra little twist of the only way they could ever get caught is if they tore each other to pieces and of course they did mm-hmm. because they're two people who are terrible for each other it's it's such a good little twist mm-hmm. and just makes for a really great story on that front. Yeah. I agree with you. Like the fault is that it's a little overlong because you're hand holding our way through it a little bit. Yeah. But I will say to your point about, you know, movies at the time being a little more like that, you know, a lot of movies would even extend this way further. Oh, I, I agree. Um, and especially like historical epic type movies mm-hmm. where they recircle the plot like three or four times mm-hmm. and it goes two and a half hours. And at least this pulls in at a at a clean 145. Yeah. It doesn't need to be more than 90 minutes, to be honest. But I mean, the plot is very good. And I, th- I think what really helps it, too, is that the characters are really strong. Mm-hmm. And that just helps because... You know, depending on how you feel about the performances in the movie, mm-hmm. the characters are so well defined that it doesn't really matter whether they mesh all the time or not. It's so very clear on the page that the actors can put into it whatever they put into it, and it's still going to come across. Yeah, I aside from like telegraphing a bit much, it's very it's very economized. It's it's just smart. Yes, just it, it smart. is smart. It is smart. Kane's novella was based on a 1927 murder by a married Queens woman and her lover. Kane had actually attended her trial while working as a journalist. Ruth Snyder persuaded her boyfriend, Judd Gray, to kill her husband, Albert, after taking out a giant insurance policy with a double indemnity clause. Mm. Obviously, the point being that if the accident is unexpected... <laughs> And in a very strange way, you get double the payout. They were quickly arrested and convicted, and the paper published a front-page photo of Ruth's execution in the electric chair. It was cited as one of the most famous news photos of the 1920s. I do not recommend finding this picture. It's really disturbing to look at. Hmm. It is an actual picture of the execution. Okay. But it was a big story, and Kane based his stuff on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Kane's novel didn't get published for a while after he wrote that story, but they had actually submitted it for production offers way back in 1935, Mm. well before this movie gets made. He had offers of up to $25,000 or nearly $550,000 in today's money to make this movie Mm. because it's a great story. Yeah. Louis B. Mayer actually optioned the film and sent it to the Production Code of America, the Hayes Code, the Breen Code. All that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Joseph I. Breen, the director, considered the book unsuitable for filming at the time. Quote, The leading characters are murderers who cheat the law and die at their own hands. The story deals improperly with an illicit and adulterous sex relationship. And the details of the vicious and cold-blooded murder are clearly shown. I mean, he's not wrong. No. But it doesn't make it not being worth filming. But, like I said, this movie doesn't get made because mm-hmm. of this. Because of what the PC, the code directors say, every studio in town is like, well, we can't make this movie. Mm -hmm. The letter was sent to Warner Brothers in Columbia in 1935. Paramount later tried to option it in 1943 now, and they got a letter saying you can't make it. 
But in fall 1943, they sent him an early script treatment that appeared to be acceptable. His only qualms were, quote, The bath towel in the opening sequence must properly cover Phyllis and should certainly go below her knees. There must be no unacceptable exposure. (laughs) Yeah, because that's how petty this motherfucker was. Oh, sure. Also, he noted that, quote, The whole sequence of the detailed disposition of the corpse is unacceptable as a too detailed exposition of crime. We strongly urge, therefore, that you fade out after they take the body from the car. The rating system has never been good, but my God, it was even stupider back in the 30s and that's 40s. Pretty, that's pretty dumb. <laughs> like, so dumb. Uh, Kane ultimately got a $15,000 offer from Paramount to make this. So, hey, look, he walked away with $325,000 in 1944 money. Hmm. He got half on signing and half if he was able to get the script approved by the Hayes office. so ridiculous Billy Wilder's got this script but the studio wants someone who has a similar style to Kane Hmm. and so they hire the best detective novelist that they know Raymond Chandler Hmm. now Chandler was a surprising choice because he considered Kane's work to be quote gutter trash (laughs) okay he considered Kane, quote, a Marcel Proust in greasy overalls, a dirty little boy with a piece of chalk and a board fence and nobody looking. Everything he touches smells like a billy goat, unquote. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Raymond Chandler, not mincing words. <laughs> I, wow. Yeah. That... We talk about the pettiness of Hollywood now. Mm-hmm. When I tell you the shit that I can dig up on these old movies. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. Uh, when Chandler was approached to adapt the novel, he told Billy Wilder that he had to get at least $150 a week in salary. He was shocked when fellow producer Joseph Sistrom told him later they originally planned him to give $750 a week. He underbid himself. But he did fine. Just to show you how big his reputation was, he was kept on a writer's retainer for the entire eight-week shooting schedule. No other studio writer would have been given a deal like that. Wow. So, I mean, they were paying him just to be around in case they needed to do something while they were making the movie. So, it was a big fucking deal. They were going to pay him like it. (laughs) Originally, Wilder and Chandler intended to keep most of the book's original dialogue, but Raymond Chandler was the one who realized that the dialogue wouldn't actually work on screen. Billy Wilder disagreed with him, and he was annoyed that Chandler would not put it in the script. So, they settled the disagreement by hiring contract players to come in and read the novel's dialogue. Hmm. In that reading, Wilder was forced to admit, astonished, that he was wrong (laughs) and that Chandler was right. Because Billy Wilder was never wrong. Of course not. So, Raymond Chandler and Wilder redid the dialogue. They kept the story structure from the novel instead. Mm-hmm. And Kane later admitted that if he had seen the work Wilder and Chandler made for the film before he ever started writing, he would have hired them to write the book instead of him doing it. <laughs> he had okay. to be like, oh, this is 10 times better than my book. <laughs> Which the dialogue is a huge part of it. It's snappy. It's, it's interesting, too, because it's got that film noir vibe. Mm-hmm. At moments, and then at moments, it gets much more almost romantic and melodramatic in a lot of ways, hmm. but in just the right ways, right? I just hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's interesting. The The movie does jump tones every now and then, but it always feels like it's jumping them in the right ways at the right times, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's it's doing it on purpose. It's not doing it just to be weird and melodramatic in a weird moment. Yeah. And part of it, too, is that as the movie goes on, you know, the paranoia is just seeping in. Mm-hmm. So Walter and Phyllis are just getting weirder and weirder and weirder as the movie goes on. And Walter gets really sweaty. But that makes sense because, you know, he's worried somebody's going to catch him for murder. <laughs> Raymond Chandler did a lot of the field work while he was writing. He took tons and tons of notes visiting all around Los Angeles. And he's the one who brought a lot of the Los Angeles environment into the movie. And this is probably one of those first real big movies that made Los Angeles such a central part of the story. Mm hmm. You know, Heat owes a lot to this fucking movie. 50 years later, we're still throwing Los Angeles in as a character. He actually hung around Jerry's Market on Melrose to prepare the the script for that meeting where Phyllis and Walter planned the murder in the supermarket. Hmm. He like watched the way the supermarket went so that they could write it out that way. Which, hey, Raymond Chandler, lots of lots of good work. Yeah. Now, Wilder and Chandler obviously had issues while writing this script. Oh, really? They constantly argued. Wilder would flaunt his womanizing just to torment the very sexually repressed Raymond Chandler. (laughs) This wasn't out of any religious issues. Chandler was just a constant drinker and alcoholic. Mm -hmm. But Wilder would just go around talking about how he slept with a whole bunch of women that weekend or something (laughs) just to piss him off. And Wilder may have used that as inspiration when he dealt with the F. Scott Fitzgerald story, The Lost Weekend, for his next film. Mm -hmm. At one point during production, Raymond Chandler failed to show up for work. When he was tracked down, he started listing reasons why he could not work with Billy Wilder. Quote, Mr. Wilder frequently interrupts our work to take phone calls from women. Quote, Mr. Wilder ordered me to open up the window. He did not say please. Wow. Quote, he sticks his baton in my eyes. Quote, I can't work with a man who wears a hat in the office. I feel he's about to leave momentarily. As a note, Billy Wilder always wore a baseball cap around while he was writing. What? What? Raymond Chandler threatened to resign from the film unless Billy Wilder personally apologized. Wilder surprised himself. And actually apologized to Raymond Chandler. Wow. Quote from Billy. It was the first and probably only time on record in which a producer and director ate humble pie in which the screenwriter humiliated the big shots. Unquote. Wow. (laughs) Again, Raymond Chandler would not have been tolerated with had he not created a literal literary icon. Mm Mm-hmm. And was that good of a writer? Because again, from reading this, the dialogue, the realism, the environment, the moodiness, that all came from Chandler. Billy got the plot together for sure and knew how to put all that together. Mm -hmm. But Chandler's the one that really adds the little zippy touches to this movie that put it a little bit elevated above just a standard film noir. Mm -hmm. So he gets all the credit for that. It's just also a pain in the ass. That's so funny. Um, and a final note on the writing. This film became so imitated 
after this came out because it was a huge hit that James M. Cain believed he deserved credit and remuneration for those movies. Mm -hmm. However, he didn't sue. He instead tried to work with the Writers Guild to create something called the American Authors Authority, a union that would own members' works, negotiate subsidiary deals, and protect against copyright infringement for authors that optioned their novels. It would be labor rights for anyone who submitted their work for adaptation. Hmm. I'm like, that's awesome. That's a smart idea. It is. His movement, unfortunately, came right in the middle of the Red Scare. Mm -hmm. And so the guild fleed far away from the attempt. They were trying to get away from any idea of socialist organizing. So it never came to fruition. But it was such a smart idea from Kane. Mm -hmm. So even if his writing may not have been the best, what a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> Wild shit. Wild shit, man. Yeah, that's really crazy. <laughs> Don't fuck with Billy Wilder. All right. Well, let's talk about Billy's directing. Mm -hmm. Before this, he uh, did a few movies, including The Major and the Minor and Five Graves to Cairo. After this, he directed The Lost Weekend, The Emperor Waltz, A Foreign Affair, Sunset Boulevard, Ace in the Hole, Stalock 17, Sabrina, The Seven Year Itch, The Spirit of St. Louis, Love in the Afternoon, Witness for the Prosecution, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, Irma LaDuce, The Fortune Cookie, The Private Life, Sherlock Holmes, and The Front Page. It's a lot of the same movies that he wrote, but there's a few here and there that he directed that he mm -hmm. didn't write. What do we think of Billy Wilder's directing in this movie? I really enjoyed it. It feels very different than The Apartment, which is the only other film of his that I've seen. It's definitely feels noir, but it also just feels like the style that he filmed things in matched the actual story. So it doesn't feel heavy handed. Um, but at the same time, it's like, oh, this is your template for how to do noir. I think that's the hallmark of Billy Wilder mm -hmm. as a writer, as a director. It's just we have a story to tell. What's the best way to tell it? Mm -hmm. And he spent his whole career trying to master that. Mm -hmm. And whether he succeeds or fails is how well he does that. Like, okay, we're we're telling a story about an insurance salesman that gets involved with this woman in an affair, and suddenly he decides he's going to go against the system he's created, he's been working for this whole time. Okay, well, obviously it's a film noir, and we can play with some of those elements, but there's also some like psychological thriller components here. Mm -hmm. We need to play with that tension. We also can play with like some action stuff or some like heisty type vibes, mm -hmm. which wasn't uncommon for some noirs. But like he again, he's he's shifting tones, but he's doing it at certain moments because there's so much stuff that needs to be done, and, and there's so many different things that that need to be brought up for each of these characters. Mm -hmm. And when we reveal a twist. He changes the tone because it's a twist. Mm. There's even a little bit of romance in there. Twice, because there's a little bit of weird romance between Walter and the daughter. A little a little bit. Not romance, but tension, for sure. Yeah, they played it off as though it might become romance, but I like that they didn't actually go that way because that would have been really eye-rolly. Yeah. There, there's a little bit of that, like, he's just driving a car on two wheels and you don't know if he's going to pull it off. And then he does mm -hmm. <laughs> half the time. Yes. It's a fun way to watch a movie because mm -hmm. you're like, is he going to pull this off? And it's like, he kind of did. Yeah. 
Sometimes it doesn't quite pull off, but for most of the part, you're just like, wow, what a magic trick you pulled. Mm-hmm. Pulling all of this stuff together. Again, he just does it so purposefully, and then he just, every once in a while, he just gets these shots. Like them on the hill looking at the Hollywood Bowl. Or when he talks about walking in and the dust wafting through the room. Mm-hmm. And just the way that they put the light on that and the dust flies up and you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. He doesn't do it too much because it would be gimmicky. But every once in a while, he just sets that mood so well visually. And you're like, oh, if you really wanted to, you could like go full bore and make an epic. But that's not what you want to do. <laughs> so he's he's really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. A note on Phyllis's wig. Because that is not Barbara Stanwyck's real hair. Oh, okay. Barbara Stanwyck was definitely a brunette. The blonde wig made for Barbara Stanwyck was Wilder's idea. He wanted her to be a blonde. But a month in, he decided to himself that it looked terrible. <laughs> that okay. he hated the way it looked on screen. Now I'm curious because it sounds like you don't think the you don't think so. Well, I I just um what. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize she was wearing a wig. Wow. Well, maybe they pulled it off. Maybe it didn't look great on camera or or just like when they were sitting there looking at it. By the time it was done, it was too late to do reshoots. So to rationalize it, he simply said in interviews that the bad wig was intentional. Hmm. And while viewing Rush's production head, Buddy DeSilva said of the wig, we are Barbara Stanwyck and here we get George Washington, unquote. Okay. Interesting. I was not prepared for you to say that. I thought you would have been like, yeah, that wig. But no. Interesting. I didn't I didn't notice it being like out of place. No, it didn't. I didn't notice it at all, which means it was fine. You know, that's one of those 1944 things, probably, because Barbara Stanwyck's a big fucking deal. I bet to audiences who knew who Barbara Stanwyck was, they were all like, what the fuck is on her head? Maybe. For us watching now, we're like, oh, blonde lady. Because Barbara Stanwyck's not a movie star for us. Interesting. I don't know. Phyllis's anklet also got a lot of attention in the story because of an urban legend that a married woman wearing an anklet indicates she's married but available to other men. Interesting. Okay. Mm. I hadn't heard that before. To get the illusion of the waning sunlight in Phyllis's house, they used silver dust mixed with subtle smoke effect. Again, beautiful shot. Oh, yeah. And there was a separate ending that was shot for the film. Walter would have been caught by police and executed in a gas chamber with keys looking on in despair. Preview audiences watched it, but Wilder decided it would be much more poignant if Neff died in his office with keys by his side. Hmm. This was against Raymond Chandler's wishes for the film. He wanted him to be executed but joseph breen probably objected to the graphic nature of the execution because he was a pissant so i don't know it ends much better this way Mm -hmm. where it's just his confession and then keys coming in finally to be like oh (laughs) i completely Mm -hmm. underestimated you yeah and also overestimated you how you doing walter fine Somebody moved the elevator a couple of miles away. They ran away. You know why you couldn't figure this one, Keys? I'll tell you. Because the guy you were looking for was too close. Right across the desk from you. Closer than that, Walter. 
I love you too. <laughs> and that leads us straight to our cast. And for this movie, it's a short list. Mm-hmm. We've only got three main actors. And we start with my three sons, dad himself, and star of the apartment, Fred McMurray, playing Walter Neff. Before this, he was in Seeing You Sinners, Cafe Society, and Above Suspicion. After this, he was in The Miracle of the Bells, An Innocent Affair, Family Honeymoon, The Cane Mutiny, The Shaggy Dog, The Apartment, then did My Three Sons on Television, The Absent-Minded Professor, Son of Flubber, Follow Me, Boys, and The Happiest Millionaire. What do we think of Fred McMurray in this movie? He's great. I mean, when I saw him, I was like, is that the My Three Sons guy? Which, right? I, that's not... That's not- one that I watched very much and it's like uh syndication days. Um I was more of a I love Lucy occasional Andy Griffith girl. But I like I knew enough that I was like, I think it's that guy. And it's, sure enough, that's him. He's great. He feels very imposing. Yeah, because he's so fucking tall. That's yes. part of it. Yes, he is very tall. Tall, broad shouldered, big jaw. Which I think kind of helps because it it makes it hard to imagine him pretending to be somebody else or for him to physically not stick out to others and it's so funny because his entire career not just later on with like my three sons he was the amiable good-looking guy Mm. he was like the anti-don draper his entire film career Mm -hmm. like just the perfect clean average american dude and yet in both movies that Billy Wilder brought him in, he is playing completely against type. And some of this was just him as a person. Like, he wasn't, he, he was just sort of a, an average, easygoing dude. There's no, like, history of wild womanizing or alcoholism. He's mm-hmm. just an actor. And so for him to go dark like this was a shock for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. But it works because of that look. And all you have to do is make it sinister. And and the way it works for him is that he can't just be a criminal, right? Like you can't put him in a film noir where he's a thief or he's a con man Mm -hmm. because nobody will believe that. But you can believe that he's an average insurance salesman. He's a good salesman, Mm -hmm. but that he's led into this darkness Hmm. and it overtakes him. That's what makes it so believable for a guy who up until this point had just been sort of an... A, a dude it, it plays to the the moral failing aspect of it and the sort of morality play that's embedded in here mm-hmm. and then again he's such a talented actor that he can do it even though he didn't think he could only really having the my three sons frame of reference from him this feels so different but it's great mm-hmm. yeah and i i just think he's it's really easy to like him, but also be like, you're a bad dude. You did a bad thing, but you still have to like him. You have to like him the whole time, mm-hmm. despite him getting worse and worse and worse as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. And like, there's been recent interesting takes from people who are like, you know, if you didn't realize Walter White was a bad guy on on Breaking Bad immediately, what are you doing? Yeah, I well, I was just thinking that that like it's kind of that same thing like you have to like him and understand that he can be a bad dude at the same time you have to like him to start at the very least because you have to be willing to go on this on this ride with him Mm -hmm. even when you know it's already turned that he's bad and then by the time you realize oh shit he's terrible (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. You're pot committed. You have to find out how it ends. Yeah. It's great. And and he does a great job with it. Billy Wilder actually had a really hard time finding a leading man for this movie. Really? Because nobody wanted to take it. McMurray, of course, was just like, he really didn't think he had what it took to do this movie. Like, he was like, this is not my skill set at all. And Wilder really just had to spend a ton of time with him, convincing him to sign on. Hmm. In fact, the only reason he signed on to the apartment later on to play a horrible womanizing boss mm-hmm. was because he had done this movie. That's, yeah, because I forget that he's the boss. Yeah, he's he's also the really bad guy in the apartment. Also named Sheldrake. <laughs> <laughs> And in his first kiss with Phyllis, Walter has a ring on his finger. Fred McMurray was married. They didn't notice the ring until post-production. Oh, no. So it is a mistake. But if you look carefully, you can see it there. But again, it just plays into his whole thing of being a married guy and not a whole lot of weird, dark stuff for him in his entire career. Mm -hmm. Wow. Some who could have been betters. Dick Powell, who played Billy Lawler in 42nd Street, the young guy, mm, okay. he really wanted the role, oh. but he was under contract to another studio and they wouldn't allow it. Enraged, he tore up his contract with the other studio, Really, okay. but it did not land him the role. Dick Powell would have been good. Uh, maybe a little too clean cut. He's sort of, he was a little, I mean, stature wise, mm-hmm. he's shorter a little bit. And a little more baby face. So I don't know that it would play as well. Hmm. Also, it could have been better George Raft. Now, that's not a name you know, but later on down the road, just keep that name in your mind. He was a gangster tough guy known for his signature of flipping a coin and staring dead into the camera. If you've ever seen like Bugs Bunny cartoons, you've seen a caricature of this guy. Okay. He said he would only take the role if his character turned out to be an FBI agent and entrap Phyllis at the end. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Billy and Chandler both went, no, that's the exact opposite of what we want from this movie. <laughs> and then some other names. We have Alan Ladd from Shane. Okay. James Cagney, Scarface himself. Oh. Spencer Tracy, a little older, but I would, Spencer Tracy wouldn't be bad for this. Um, yeah. He's got that cragginess. Well, if not for him, for keys would have been good too. Not not quite yet, because Spencer Tracy was still m- a little bit younger at this point for that role. Sure, but they're meant to. They they feel like they can be about the same age. Mm, I don't know. And then finally, Gregory Peck. Mm, no, I love Gregory Peck, but that voice just ruins it for a lot of movies for him. It does. Just no. Like he's a great actor in the movies he's in, but mm-hmm. he has that voice, and you just can't get around that. Yeah, that's a no for me. <laughs> All right. Well, then we get to Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Dietrichson. Before this, she was in Mexicali Rose, Babyface, The Secret Bride, The Woman in Red, Annie Oakley, Union Pacific, The Lady Eve, and Billy Wilder's Ball of Fire. After this, she was in Hollywood Canteen, Christmas in Connecticut, The Bride Wore Boots, East Side, West Side, Jeopardy, Titanic from 1953, Executive Suite, Witness to Murder, and lots of television later down the road. Hmm. What do we think of Barbara Stanwyck in this movie? I really like her because, again, like you have to like her and feel bad for her and then also believe that she's capable 
of having two people murdered. You have to like her, but you also need to be immediately suspicious of her. Because Walter is immediately suspicious of her. I don't think you have to be immediately suspicious of her, but you do have to believe that she is capable. Yeah. Because it's presented as though it might be a misunderstanding, and then you know it's not. See what I mean, Walter? Sure, I got good eyesight. You mean you want him to have the policy without him knowing it? And that means without the insurance company knowing that he doesn't know it. That's the setup, isn't it? Is there anything wrong with it? No, I think it's lovely. Then if some dark, wet night, that crown block did fall on him. What crown block? Only sometimes it can't quite make it on its own. It has to have a little help. I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, it doesn't have to be a crown block. It can be a car backing over and we could fall out of the upstairs window. Any little thing like that, just so it's a morgue job. Are you crazy? Not that crazy. Goodbye, Mrs. Dietrichson. What's the matter? Look, baby, you can't get away with it. Yeah, I, th- I think more than anything, what that speaks to is just like, she doesn't just bring a femme fatale vibe to this role. Yeah. Which undoubtedly some actresses would have done. Mm-hmm. She brings a whole lot more complexity because she does bring the I am capable of murdering. But the facade she also brings that is very believable is I am a tortured housewife in a terrible relationship mm-hmm. and I want out. And what I think is fascinating is I feel like to the very end, both things are still true. Like, she is a Black Widow murderer, and also she is tortured in this sort of, like, rich prison that she's in, Mm -hmm. and she wants out. And I feel, it it really does feel like both things are true in some weird way. (laughs) I don't know, it's a testament to how well she plays both sides of that, Mm -hmm. that you find yourself still guessing which part is true at the end of the movie. And it just plays well because, again, she could be very one note. And instead, she's this fully fleshed out character with a whole lot of different things going on. And she completely has Walter believing that she's in love with him. And maybe mm-hmm. she is and maybe she isn't. And we're guessing till the end of the fucking movie. Yeah. And we never really know. <laughs> she was the first choice to play Phyllis, but she was unnerved by the thought of being a ruthless killer. She was like, I don't know if I can do that. When she said this to Billy Wilder, he asked her, are you a mouse or an actress? <laughs> Love this man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she decided, well, okay, then. <laughs> he called me out. I got to do it. Yeah. And then just some fun notes about her career. She's actually an idol to a lot of actresses, including Sally Field and Virginia Madsen, who consider mm. her their role model. Because I believe she was also very deeply involved in trying to help women in the industry. Yeah. Her horribly tempestuous marriage to first husband, Frank Fay, is thought to be a model for the original A Star is Born. Oh, okay. And Marilyn Monroe, who worked with her in the film Clash by Night, said Barbara Stanwyck was the only member of older Hollywood who was kind to her. Aww. However, Barbara was also a staunch Republican who... Along with Ginger Rogers, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, John Wayne, and Irene Dunn created the MPA to push right-wing politics in the McCarthy era. Mm. So she's a mixed bag. And finally, that leads us to our last actor, Edward G. Robinson as Barton Keyes. He was Hollywood's original gangster and hard-boiled actor of the golden age of Hollywood. Hmm. Before this, he was in Little Caesar, Silver Dollar, The Man with Two Faces, Barbary Coast, Bullets or Ballots, The Last Gangster, I Am the Law, 
Blackmail, and Larceny, Inc. After this, he was in The Woman in the Window, All My Sons, Key Largo, Vice Squad, Black Tuesday, A Bullet for Joey, The Ten Commandments, A Hole in the Head, The Prize, Robin and the Seven Hoods, The Cincinnati Kid, McKenna's Gold, and Soylent Green. He is also the character prototype for The Simpsons' Chief Wiggum. Ah, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Wow, he's good. Yeah. He steals the fucking movie. Mm-hmm. And again, this plays to all three of these actors. They're bringing a whole lot of groundedness to what could very easily be over dramatic acting. Oh, yeah. But like, I believe this is a dude that's like, I just got this hunch. And you know he's on it the whole time. Mm-hmm. And and I love I love that for a moment we think he's fooled, but then he's not. <laughs> yeah. What's on your mind? That broken leg. The guy had a broken leg. What are you talking about? I'm talking about Dietrichson. He had accident insurance, didn't he? Yeah. And then he broke his leg, didn't he? So what? And he didn't put in a claim. Why didn't he put in a claim? Why? What are you driving at? Walter, I had dinner two hours ago. Man, he's stuck halfway. Little man of yours is acting up again, eh? There's something wrong with the Dietrichson case. Why, because he didn't file a claim? Maybe he just didn't have time. Maybe he just didn't know that he was insured. And just, just the way he interacts and the fact that the only thing that blinds him to what's going on is that he's so trusting and wants to believe in the people around him mm-hmm. that he's unwilling to see that it could be somebody he knows right next to him that's the bad guy. Like, he's he's the good guy. <laughs> yeah, no, he is. He's not doing anything wrong. It's just like, oh, man. And, like, he's shocked, but also just like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it makes sense that I wouldn't have seen this because you're you're next to me. And the good guy is the guy who wants to deny insurance claims. <laughs> yeah. The irony. <laughs> that's pretty good. It's funny because, again, this guy was like, through the 30s, for sure, and mm-hmm. a little bit into the 40s, he was like head honcho gangster actor. Like between him and James Cagney, they were your go-to mobsters. Yeah. And in this movie, he's playing the opposite. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it really did shift his career in some ways, where he goes into a different sort of era of acting. Some of that's also age at this point, but it just... I don't know that we would see it in 1944, but I feel like this turn was huge for a lot of people for Mm -hmm. seeing him at the time in this much different role where he's like the good natured moral guy, Mm -hmm. despite being in a job that everybody kind of hates. But like even he recognizes, yeah, people hate this, but it's the best job, (laughs) or at least he thinks so. Yeah. Notwithstanding the real great stuff from the other two, like he really steals the movie for me in so many ways. I really like him. I liked him too. And I think he brought some needed comic relief. Oh, yeah. But not in a cheesy way. No, no, no. Not in a way that like cheapened anything. It was, yeah, it was just needed. Mm-hmm. Good news for him. He was an unabashed Democrat who had a bidding war with Melvin Douglas for the Fedora FDR war in his three campaigns for president. He did it to support the Motion Picture Relief Fund. Eventually, he was gray-listed during the Red Scare, and he had to move to stage for quite some time before he was able to come back to movies. Oh, wow. Okay. He was reluctant to take on the role largely because he didn't want to be the third lead in Billing. 
Ah, okay. I mean, fair. He was a big fucking deal. Sure. It took some convincing to get the former leading gangster to figure, to understand he was in a different phase of his career, but it also helped that he was going to get paid the same as the other two. Oh, yeah, that'll help. And that is it for our main cast, so that will lead us into our Arpons. Arpons, random people of note. We have Porter Hall playing Mr. Jackson. He played Granville Sawyer, the bad guy, in Miracle on 34th Street. Hmm. Jean Heather playing Lola Dietrichson. She followed this up with the film Going My Way and was probably on her way to film stardom when she got in a really terrible car accident in 1947. She Hmm. reportedly struggled with head injuries that killed her acting career. Hmm. So... Uh, she was very good. And you're just like, oh, wow. you, Yeah, you probably would have been a movie star. Mm. Tom Powers playing Mr. Dietrichson. This was his return to films after appearing in silent films from 1911 to 1917 before heading to Broadway. Hmm. He just came back for here. Wow. As a man reading a magazine outside Key's office, Raymond Chandler. This would be his only ever film appearance. Really? Edmund Cobb, playing the train conductor, he was the grandson of Edmund Gibson Ross, governor of the Territory of New Mexico, and the Kansas senator credited with, credited with the deciding vote to impeach Andrew Johnson. Okay. But political history. Yay. I don't know. Whatever. All right. <laughs> that, the trivia, guys. The trivia on old movie stars is fun. Weird. Best Flowers, playing Norton's secretary. We've mentioned her as an Arpon before. She's the most prolific actress in Hollywood, probably. She's known as the queen of the Hollywood extras. Hmm. She was in over 700 films, 979 credits in IMDb. She's got 25 Best Picture nominees she's in and five Best Picture winners over 41 years in movies. Hmm. Mona Freeman playing a secretary. She was actually supposed to play Lola Dietrichson, but she photographed so young that they replaced her with Jean Heather instead. Um, she was also a former Miss Subway member from On the Town. Oh, yeah. And a fun fact, she campaigned for the lead in Roman Holiday, but producers wanted to go for an unknown actress, so they chose Audrey Hepburn. Yeah. In 1953, she was an unknown. I, I can't blame him for that. <laughs> Sam McDaniel playing Charlie, the garage attendant. He was the brother of Hattie McDaniel, the famous black actress who won an Oscar for Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, He also had his own jazz band in the 1920s on the radio and vaudeville circuit. Clarence Muse playing a man. I'm not sure specifically where. Um, He was actually one of the first black actors to ever have a starring role in a film of any kind. Really? Okay. (laughs) He also appeared as an opera singer, minstrel performer, and vaudeville actor. He composed songs, wrote plays and sketches. He pioneered black theater before he ever appeared on the screen. He was a big fucking deal. Wow. And Billy Wilder put him in this movie. And finally, Miriam Nelson playing Key's secretary. She was a dancer and choreographer who worked on Lullaby of Broadway in 1951. Picnic, the apartment, she choreographed the Christmas party dance. Oh, okay. Cat Baloo, Cactus Flower, and a ton of other famous 50s movies. Okay. And that leads us to awards. Awards. And y'all, there's a lot of award nominations. For Billy Wilder. Mm, okay. Mm. <laughs> this film was nominated for seven Academy Awards with zero wins. Mm. It was nominated for Best Picture, lost to the film Going My Way. It was nominated for Best Actress for Barbara Stanwyck. 
She lost to Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight. Mm. Billy Wilder was nominated for Best Director. He lost to Leo McCary for Going My Way, which I should mention is a Bing Crosby musical. Uh. Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder were nominated to Best Writing. They lost to Going My Way. A fun fact from our previous movies, Meet Me in St. Louis was also nominated here. And this is the same year that Margaret O'Brien won an Outstanding Child Actress Award for that film. Ah. And then it was nominated for Best Black and White Cinematography, Best Sound, and Best Music. Now, I bring up this Going My Way bit because Billy Wilder was so mad about losing to Leo McCary sweeping picture, director, and writing that when McCary got the award for Best Director, Billy Wilder stuck his foot out and tripped McCary in the aisle. That wasn't nice. The pettiness. It's funny, but it's not nice. <laughs> no, it's absolutely great. I don't care. Mm-hmm. These are two men with plenty of money just fucking with each other. Sure. Well, one man fucking with another man who made a Bing Crosby musical that is not this very well-made movie. Mm-hmm. Wilder would get his revenge the very next year for The Lost Weekend. Trivia. Just a few more little things. At one point, Paramount planned to remake this film with Robert Redford in Fred McMurray's role. Hmm. But it never got off the ground. Ah! uh, You know what? Redford's got the sneaky charm and darkness that he could Mm -hmm. do it. So could Paul Newman. Yeah. I don't know which I would like better. I mean, I'm a Redford girl, so. Well, I, I get it. But... You know, I think about it, it's like, oh, he's too clean cut. And I was like, no, Fred McMurray was clean cut. That could be work. You can make it work. And you could do it now, but it wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to go so noir with it. It would have to be more thriller. But it would be fascinating to figure out plot wise. How, how do you rethink this for today? Mm-hmm. The intricacy would be much deeper because like, there's no easy way to get away with an insurance plot like this. Yeah. So I would... Uh, it could be an interesting remake if anybody ever wants to try it. Mm-hmm. Wilder, who was known for loving an inside joke, built one into Walter Neff's office at Pacific All Risk. Mm. Billy Wilder and set designer Hal Pereira created the set with rows and rows of identical desks going off into the emptiness of business as Walter walks into his office to give his confession. Pereira was copying an office that was very familiar to both him and Billy the corporate headquarters of Paramount Pictures in New York City. Mm. (laughs) Billy Wilder is one of the first dudes to troll the studio he is working for in his movies. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Billy Wilder added the scene where Walter and Phyllis can't get their car started after the murder because he, in fact, couldn't get his car to start one day after shooting. (laughs) It's a funny bit that actually adds a little tension to a Mm -hmm. scene. When Phyllis is listening at Neff's door talking to Keys, Keys leaves the hallway and Phyllis hides behind the door. Building codes don't allow doors to open into hallways. Ah, yeah. But they fudged it because they needed somewhere for Phyllis to hide to keep the, the dramatic tension. Yeah, I get that. Like, I knew that wouldn't wasn't a thing. But it is interesting. It was like, oh, realistically, that wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. When Walter and Phyllis meet in the supermarket, they are in the baby food aisle. From then on, Walter calls Phyllis Baby. Hmm. And originally, Walter Neff was named Walter Ness. But in doing his diligence, Billy Wilder learned there was an actual person named Walter Ness in Beverly Hills who was an insurance salesman. Hmm. 
<laughs> and that leads us to ratings. Ratings. Wow. Ratings for each individual film. We have to have a special rating system for this one. Dictaphones. I do like a dictaphone to give the to give the confession. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go first. It's neither of our movies because neither of us have ever seen it before. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go four. Four dictaphones. Four dictaphones for me. It's a really solid movie. Mm-hmm. It's really well constructed. Again, probably the most annoying thing is it does hold your hand a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just let us roll along with the story. But the way the characters are drawn and the way they're pulled together and the slow burn of like, how are you going to convince this otherwise seemingly like a little bit of a dick, but mostly an okay guy, mm-hmm. turn into a cold-blooded murderer? And that's a just, just a fascinating story to tell especially when you're doing it in a genre that's not known for actually getting deep into the characters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mixing that with Wilder's ability to just go in whatever direction he wants to, but always keeping the story at the forefront. This isn't a perfect movie, but there's a reason why it's so highly regarded and like taught in film schools Mm -hmm. because it's just really well done. Four stars. Four stars. I think it's a three and a half for me. Okay. Just because I feel like we could have tightened it up just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it is really solid and it is a fabulous template for what a noir film should do. I, I thought a lot about Nightmare Alley. Mm, yeah. Just, and just in that, like, it wasn't overdone. It's a lot of shadows and like suspense. And I just, I loved it. I, I did really like it. It's just, yeah. it's a three and a half for me. It's a really, it's a really watchable movie. Mm-hmm. It is, it is not anywhere for streaming, but it's, it's a really well-known film. R- rent it, watch it. It's, it's mm-hmm. a great watch. And from there, we're gonna jump ahead six years entirely, and a lot of movies that he made mm. to an instant classic film, one that I have seen before, and one that is known ubiquitously for its name all throughout movie history. Because we are going to watch Sunset Boulevard. Ah, okay. It's been a long time since I've watched it, but I remember just being stunned by this movie when I first saw it. Mm, okay. Maybe just for the sheer audacity of the story it wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a couple of people you know, you really like, specifically one guy, and uh, we're going to get some really interesting takes on Hollywood. Hmm, okay. So, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for this one. I mean... I'm excited about this whole series because I really like his work. Oh, yeah. No, I am too. I'm excited. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.